0: Well, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, where we are going. And um, I think we're almost there. I wonder if you've met the young man or heard of the fellow who wore a T-shirt on which were emblazoned those letters B-A-I-K. And someone once said to him, "'What does this mean? Is it a club?' "'Oh, no,' he said, "'it's just how I feel.' "'What do you mean?' "'Boy,' he said, "'am I confused?' And so the man looked at his T-shirt again and said, "'Well, don't you understand that confused is spelt with a C and not a K?' "Sir," so he said, "'That just shows how confused I am.'" There are many people who are confused in our world. What's it all about? Where are we going?' And that spirit of confusion is found in many churches today. We need to find again the way to confidence. Confidence. I don't mean self-confidence. You don't need to come to church for that. And my purpose is not to inflate our self-confidence today, although I hope we do go away from here encouraged. Nor is it a false sense of confidence in which the pussycat sees itself as a lion. No, I'm thinking of confidence in the gospel. Jesus is alive, is the message of the Scriptures read to us. And I want us to think this morning of three things. First of all, the focus of the confidence we are to have as people called to mission across the street, across the seas. Secondly, the nature of the confidence we are to have. And thirdly, the purpose of our confidence. That won't be too hard to remember, I trust. So let's look at the first of these, the focus of our confidence. Ian read to us those exciting, thrilling, and important words from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. This is the gospel. I've paraphrased these words from three to five. It reads under my paraphrase like this, Christ died for our sins according to Old Testament teaching, the scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day according to Old Testament prophecies, and was seen. Now, I would say that we are to defend that there are many issues that we face today in church life. Many of them, I don't think, are worth fighting for. But this is. And there are people in the Middle East today who are prepared to give their lives for this very thing. Look at it again Christ died, a fact of history. Never lose sight of the fact that that is an historical event. No self respecting historian would deny that Jesus lived and died, and that's an important starting point. For our sins gives us the reason for his death, not simply to be an example which we are to follow, making sacrifices for others, but for our sins. And Paul is careful to add those words according to the Old Testament scriptures. Was buried. That proves that he did actually die, and clinical practitioners have examined the details of that. So the idea that was popular early on in the 20th century, that he just was resuscitated in a cold tomb, doesn't hold water. And then for me, one of the most important things, that he was seen. That he was seen. Now, I'm suggesting to you this morning that these things are, and probably always have been, under attack. The confidence we should have in this, that this is making Jesus unique. That God in heaven has spoken through his Son. That's the message of Romans chapter 1. That confidence is rather challenged by pluralism. Maybe many church leaders are saying we're just one of a number of faiths. All roads lead to heaven, and this is for us in the West. In other parts, it's Islam, and yet more it's Hinduism and Buddhism. Not only is there a challenge from pluralism, there's a big challenge in our country from secularism. We want to marginalize faith in our, in our times. It's all right that you've come to church and no one was there obstructing your coming. But I play golf. I go to the supermarket. I go to the hypermarket. One is the same as the other. And these things challenge us. And sometimes they cause us to be silent when we should be speaking up. Not only are there external pressures, there are internal pressures. One that you're going to hear more of is what theologians call nonviolent atonement. Maybe you're aware of that. Atonement is under attack. Atonement means being made one with God. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul very clearly says God has set Jesus forth as the means of atonement. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And he does have to punish sin. And in our modern political correctness, we want to eliminate that. And you'll find whole websites dedicated to the removal of this. It's called non-violent atonement. It means simply that we are saved by Jesus' good life. And if he had lived to be a 100, we could still be Christians, still go to heaven. That is not, I put it to you, the message of the Christian gospel. Another challenge, it's been there, it's there again just now, and that is progressive Christianity. In Little Largs, we had a visit, Fairly from Bishop Spong just a few months ago. Bishop Spong is a man who is a proponent, one of the leaders of progressive Christianity. Now, in fairness, their concern is ethics, how we live our lives, living righteously. Sometimes evangelical Christians have neglected this area of our responsibility. But progressive Christianity, and I'm pretty well quoting Spong, is this. We are not to disregard Christian and church traditions, but we are to be open to fresh thinking. And so if I don't like bits of the Bible and I can justify changing them, that's okay. And as a result of all of this, the church in our own land is falling silent when we should be speaking up. When is our voice heard in the media, in the newspapers, in the public arena? And yet we should have confidence in the gospel. That it is the power of God for salvation. And so that is the focus of our confidence. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ will come again. But what about the nature of? of this confidence we are to have. Why is it that sometimes we are reluctant to speak? Why is it that sometimes the church falls silent when we have the best message in the world, the message that the world needs? I didn't mean to, to, to in any sense, to slate Islam. But Islam does not say you can have your sins forgiven. It does not proclaim the truth of eternal life. But the Christian gospel does. Why are we silent? Well, let's ask the question, can we prove the resurrection? Because the nature of our confidence is important at this point. Can we prove the resurrection? If we can prove the resurrection, then that puts us on solid ground, surely. What about the scientific method? Maybe there are scientists here, and I hope you'll not be insulted by my simplistic definition of the scientific method, but it is the ability to repeat the experiment or the exercise. The ability to repeat it. That's the scientific method. In the church I pastored in the south of England years ago in Ringwood, uh, we had on a Sunday morning a great big car park, and you might find two sports cars, two Morgans won a four-cylinder job, won a six-cylinder job for the men and women who know about that. And the guy who owned the six-cylinder one said his car could do, and I better not tell you what, on the slope running down through Ringwood. So I said, prove it. Well, we were racing down there and blue lights. And we thought, oh dear, oh dear. But pulled over, the officer getting out said, Sir, is this a six-cylinder Morgan? Yes, he said hesitantly could you lift the bonnet so that i can see what it looks like (laughs) but he proved his point he was able to repeat the experiment bit naughty but uh, late at night maybe it was excused i don't know we can't go back and repeat the exercise of the resurrection so the scientific method doesn't help us what about the legal process i imagine there are a few lawyers maybe a barrister or two here i don't know But what happens in court on Monday morning? Evidence is produced and based on the evidence, the summation, you either conclude this is right, he done it, or he didn't do it, my Lord. We don't know. Charles Paulson said an interesting thing. Let me repeat these words. I hope you can all see them. He says, speaking as a lawyer, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate, you maybe remember Watergate, proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified and proclaimed the truth for 40 years that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. Now that's a fact. History bears that out. Who is going to die for what they know to be a lie? You may die for a principle. You may die for a belief. But no one is going to, right to the end, the point of martyrdom, say, This happened when you know it didn't. And then he goes on. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And I think that's very, very helpful. And that's important. Can we prove the resurrection? Not scientifically. Legal process? Yeah, well, good evidence there. But ultimately, we do it by faith. Faith, not a blind belief in something that I can't in any way look back on and see is it relevant, but faith based on evidence. And that faith is so vital to our Christian experience. Faith. And when we turn to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, the writer there says, without faith it's impossible to please God. He loves us to exercise faith. Now that's the introduction. And on this Mission Sunday, we come to the third and, for me, the most important point in these last moments of our morning service, continued again this evening. I hope you can come. The purpose of our confidence Ian read those words at the end of this chapter in which Paul is explaining that the resurrection of Jesus is vital. In fact, if we, at the time, we could have read on in verse 12 and down at verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And he comes to the end of that section, and he says, you know, we are to be pitied more than anyone else if this ain't true. We're to be pitied. We're a stock. We look stupid. It's all nonsense. But he goes on, he says, But Christ, verse 20, has indeed been raised from the dead. And then that confidence, he then goes on at the end, and he says, Therefore, in light of that, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor on the Lord is never, ever in vain. Now, note, he's writing to this church at Corinth. He's not writing to a seminar for apostles, those specially chosen by God. This is not a Bible college situation. He's writing to a church that was corrupt in many ways. It was divided. In fact, in the earlier chapters, he rebukes them. You're fans of this guy. Others are fans of that, and you're in contention. There was immorality, quite disturbing immorality, that was going unchecked in the church. And would you believe it, they were having their communion service as part of a a meal, a love feast it was called. And can you believe this? Some of them were actually drunk at the Lord's table. And it's to this motley bunch of Christian believers that he says, I urge you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So what did he mean? Well, he was speaking about living a holy life. He was speaking about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. He was speaking about living decently in church context. But I haven't the slightest doubt that what he had in mind more than anything else was their witness to the ancient world, their mission in Corinth and beyond. Was that not the challenge that Jesus brought to his disciples? He meets them for the last time, and he says, listen, boys, don't forget this. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and listen, I am with you. And when in the Acts of the Apostles they say to him, Lord, what's going to happen now? Are you going to make Israel important? Will Jerusalem again be the center of the earth? He says, don't worry about that. That's my problem, not yours. You start here in Jerusalem. And then in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the purpose and the object of the church. So what does that mean for us? The purpose of this confidence. Christ is alive. That makes him unique. That makes him stand out. Why do we have this role to play Because the world needs to hear about Jesus. What are some of the things that this might mean as as a, a result, an implication? If what I've said you agree with as a church, then what did they do in the early church? Well, the first thing they did was pray. And in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, you find them again and again and again in prayer. Praying for God's power. Praying that the world will listen. Pray that they will have equipment to do the job well. Prayer. I wonder if we as a church, and I include myself, are we really committed to prayer? If I said, how many of you here believe in prayer? I believe every believing Christian arm would shoot up. Of course you would. But do we really live like that? I find a huge challenge And Margaret and I miss it now that I'm retired, whatever that funny word means, in not being able to go back to the Middle East. Let me take you there again. We're going to the great country of Egypt. It was in the city of Makatim that an amazing thing took place on the 11th of November in 2011. Uh, Egypt had been rocked, as were other countries and there in the great city, the city of the rubbish collectors where people live among the rubbish, amazing an amazing thing happened. The leader of the Presbyterian Church, uh, the biggest church in the Middle East or the biggest Presbyterian Church, Evangelical Church, the Reverend Dr. Sammy Maurice, contacted the head of the big, big church uh, set up in the caves outside Makutum where the rubbish collectors live and work. And together they decided they would call the people of Egypt for prayer. And this is what happened. Here it is. 11th November, a night of prayer in the town or the city of Makutam, the garbage collector's village. Would you believe how many people came to that prayer meeting? Here's the figure. 70,000 people. Yep. Let me repeat it. 70,000 people. There they are gathering. Some of our MECO workers attended, and they said they'd seen nothing like it in their lives. They'd never seen so many people coming to pray. In fact, so many came that half of the evening, a half of the congregation, about one or two in the morning, were asked to leave because busloads were coming in. And then on the other side, about three or four o'clock in the morning, the other lot were asked to leave because still more were coming. Now that happened in 2011. Do you think God is answering prayer? Do you think God will pay any heed to what these 70,000 Christian believers did? And by the way, they've continued, not with such great numbers, but they continue to have these massive prayer meetings. Let me take you to another part of the world that's still in the news, and that is the city of Athens. You can see the Acropolis at the back of the modern Athens city. And I received this report just recently. The modern Athens, however, uh, sorry, the modern Athens bears little resemblance to its ancient self. While teeming with life and energy, it sags under the burden of economic stagnation and wrestles with its current and most pressing crisis, What to do with the massive influx of refugees from the Middle East? They are daily streaming into the city. And the report goes on like this. The Spirit of God is on the move and proving once again that he uses the foolishness of the world to confound the wise. God is using the city's greatest burden, the refugee crisis, to display his glory in magnificent ways. Every day, Muslim refugees in Athens are finding Jesus to be their true treasure it speaks of one just as an example one evangelist Javid is a remarkable evangelist he came as a Muslim he had never heard of the Bible he didn't know any Christians but coming to faith he began to witness every day he goes to the park to refugee camps to coffee shops to share the gospel with Iranian and Afghan refugees He knows of at least two or three Muslims who have turned to Christ nearly every day since he began this in 2008. He works in a refugee centre that provides food, clothing, practical help to newly arrived refugees. Through the ministry of this centre alone, 2,000 Muslims, overwhelmingly Iranian and Afghan, have found Christ in the last years. Javid himself, going to the park, speaking to people, has led 400 people to Christ. Do you think God answered the prayers of the people who gathered in Lakhatam on the night of 2011, the 11th of November? Today, the biggest uptake of Bibles in the whole world is Egypt. Egypt. Would you believe that? People will travel miles to find a Bible in a Bible bookshop. People are coming to Christ in remarkable ways. God is hearing the prayers of his people. Our problem in the West is we don't often hear the results. And so we get discouraged. And we think, well, maybe God isn't answering. And I hope today you'll be encouraged to pick up more information. I'm not here to sell Miko that's now linked with SIM. But I do encourage you to take the magazine. There are some great stories there. They will encourage you. And it won't cost you anything to sign up and get information, daily information. It encourages our prayers when we hear what God is doing. The purpose of our confidence is that we might pray. We can all do that. That's what we can do. The prayer meeting should be, as you often hear it said, one of the most important meetings in the, the, the church week. I'm sure your pastor, David, I'm sorry to hear he fell walking his dog. I'm sure you know that. And that's why he's not with us today. The dog is fine, by the way. <laughs> but David, I think, has broken an arm and, and some ribs. He must be in terrible pain. But boy, would he be encouraged to see the prayer meeting full. Another thing on this day when we're thinking of mission is giving. Paul's not being very specific here. He's just saying, let nothing discourage you, let nothing stand in the way. Giving yourself to the work of the Lord and giving financially is part of that. Let me take you again to the Middle East. And this time we are going to Syria. You hardly need me to point it out there. Uh, You see it clearly on the map. Syria is in deep deep crisis can you believe a beautiful building like that in aleppo completely destroyed the city of Homs, in which margaret and i had where we visited before and after i find it hard to believe that's the same street but it is a hospital destroyed with children and young people killed churches desecrated this is happening people on the move where will they go The distress on the young man's face, babies it seems with no future. The distress on that man's face and this little boy whose picture was shown round the world. All his relatives killed in a bomb blast. Sitting there, totally bemused, perplexed. What will the future hold? Well, help is coming, and Christians are able to give help. And one of the things that I know, uh, uh, Miko and Operation Mobilization and Tier Fund, they've discovered that one of the things we can do is provide beds for people who are fleeing, and maybe th- we'll hear this in a moment again, 30 or people living in a small apartment, bringing mattresses. That little child seems so much more relaxed because she can sleep with her dolly. And these things, plus medicines... Are provided because Christians give generously. We can't do everything, but where we can, let's do something. And locally, money is provided so that Christians, and that was taken in Lebanon where refugees come, they're able to get some food. And what's the result? Well, the result is that people are saying, Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing it? And the answer is, they come to church. And this is a, a local church, just like this church here. And you'll see on that slide a number of Muslims who have come. They've never heard the gospel. They're listening. And the reason they're listening is they've got food in their stomachs, they've got beds to sleep on, there's medical help provided. That giving is something that encourages them to hear the good news of the gospel. And you know, God is at work using people's giving. A remarkable story. I was preaching in Canada, and I told the story of that man on the right of the picture, uh, the Reverend Dr. Behnan, one of the heads of the Bible Society with his wife. He looks a bit disheveled, just rushed in from other meeting, and two of our Miko missionaries. Remarkable story of how Behnan came to faith through hearing om workers in jail singing praise to god he was outside as a boy playing football and he thought who sings in prison and as a result he came to faith i told this story in a bible college in canada the principal came to me later he said that's remarkable he said do you know he's coming to canada next week oh why well he said he has this vision It's a vision to have in Istanbul a place of safety for refugees coming through from uh, the east. A place where they can learn language, where they can be equipped for a new life. And he's coming on a fundraising mission. Oh, I said, that's interesting. I happened to be in South Africa a few weeks later. And I told that story to our director there, just as a matter of interest. Came back to the U.K., And the phone rang in the Tunbridge Wells office where we then lived. And my colleague said, you won't believe this. There's a guy who came into our office today and he said, I feel God has blessed my work, blessed my business, and I feel he's laid on my heart to pay for a center in Istanbul to help refugees. Wow. He hadn't a clue what to do. But my friend in South Africa was able to tell him because his friend in Canada had heard there was a need. That's the God we've got. Giving can be exciting. Giving. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Pray that God will lead and make it exciting. Giving. Sharing. And by sharing, I mean sharing our faith one to one. Sharing our faith one to one. I want to take you again to the Middle East. And this time we're going to one of these beautiful shopping malls in Kuwait City. There's a lot of wealth in the Middle East countries. And uh, like me, there's a dear man living in the south of England, Tom Hamlin. Maybe you've had him here in this church, I don't know. But Tom has been a great evangelist over the years. Yes, he preaches, but he's never been a preacher per se. He's simply what we would call a corporate worker. He takes Bibles and he distributes them in the Middle East. Sometimes it's got him into trouble. He's just written a book about it under their very eyes. It's worth getting hold of. You can get it on Amazon. But in the book, he tells the story of being in Kuwait City in this wonderful shopping mall. And he came past a door uh, and it said above it, Women Only, a ladies' dress shop. And of course in the Arab world there are places like that where only women and children can go. And he was drawn to that, Women Only. And suddenly the electric doors opened, so he thought, well, that must be the Lord, what will I do? And he walked in. Now in fairness, he just went to the cash desk. And there as he stood there, he saw two Filipino girls. And he said to them, are you Christians? And they said, yes, we are. And they saw that he carried a transparent bag with him, which he always carried, and inside a whole pile of gospels, the enjil, they call it. And they looked at these, they said, oh, do you have a gospel for us in our tongue? He said, yes, in various languages, yes, I do, because there are many Filipinos in the Middle East. In fact, the girl said, we were told not to bring Bibles to this country because they'd be taken from us. Yes, I've got some in your language. And then one of the girls bent forward and said, do you have any in Arabic? Yes, he said, why? Well, she said, when the women come here, wealthy women mostly, and they come to pay for their goods, they believe that because we are Filipinas, we'll be Christians. And of course we are. And they say, do you have an jail for me? Why, yes, he said, and he gave them a pile. A few weeks later, Tom was back in Kuwait City, and he stood outside the door, and again the electric doors opened, and he slipped in just to the cash desk, and the girls greeted him. How did he get on with the Gospels? They said, everyone has gone. Do you have more? And then the 18 months that followed, every time he went, he brought Literally hundreds of New Testaments. Friends, those Gospels would go into some of the leading homes in the country of Kuwait. Businessmen, captains of industry, politicians, religious leaders. The Gospel is spreading. You say, well, that's okay. That's a great story. It's in the Middle East. But but we're here in Britain. I know I'm overweight, I know I need to straighten up, my neck is all twisted. And so my wife sent me to a very good physiotherapist recently, just up the Clyde Coast. He's a man's man. And I thought, I wonder how I'm going to get on with him. Well, when he was pummeling away at my back, he said to me one morning, he said, What do you do? So I told him. He didn't stop. I pressed on. And I shared with him how, to me, the gospel is so important. When I went the next week, he looked at me and said, you'll never guess what I've got. What have you got? He said, I bought a Bible. You created an interest in me. I said, well, that's okay. That's, That's the King James Version. It's rather antiquated language. Let me get another one for you. I'm going to send you a Gideon Testament and a book. And I did. I have to confess, some weeks passed, and eventually I slipped under his door so that I wouldn't disturb him. A copy of John Blanchard's Ultimate Questions and a Gideon New Testament. Within hours, I got a text message. Thank you so much for this literature. It's just what I need at this time in my life. My point? There are people out there, more than we realize, who are just waiting, not just in the Middle East but in Mid-Lanarkshire, in Ayrshire. And we are to be the people that God is calling to share the good news of the gospel. Praying, giving. Always give yourselves fully. Nothing move you. Don't get discouraged. Do it. Take the risk. You'll find that often, more often than you realize, there will be a response. Sharing, but going. I would fail if on Missionary Sunday I didn't present the challenge to mission. It's a worldwide need. And just to mention the Middle East again in the magazine, there are various opportunities laid out where people can be used. You say, well, I'm not a linguist. I don't have any particular skills. Let me tell you a story that's come just recently. It's about a man, I believe, he's an Australian, he's a short-termer, he doesn't have a theological degree, he doesn't speak Arabic very powerfully, but he's there going from door to door in these great uh, buildings, these high-rises where refugees are crowded in in the city of Beirut. The story concerns one family who were so desperate, someone had told them about Isa. And so they prayed and they said, God, whoever you are, help us. Could could anyone help us? And to their amazement, they heard a voice and the voice said, Dennis will come. And they thought, what? Dennis will come. Dennis will. What is Dennis? Dennis isn't even an Arabic name, it's not Ahmed or Muhammad. And they didn't know what to do. And a couple of days later, a young man from Australia, without a theological degree, without any particular training, but just with a love for Jesus because of a need at this time, he knocked the door and he just said, Good afternoon. My name is Dennis. And he didn't even get to say, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. The girl who came squealed, rushed back into the house at the flat He thought, what have I done? What have I said? And thinking he was being kidnapped, he was dragged in. And they all sat down and they stared at him. Why what is this? And then they said, Dennis will come. That's the God we serve, who's mightily at work these days. But friends, did you notice these last words? Never in vain. Your labor in the Lord is never in vain. I'm telling you stories and you think, well, that's wonderful, but could it ever happen to me? One final story, and we are in injury time, and my apologies for that. A couple have just left the city of Beirut, where they've served the Lord for years, going into retirement, but before they did, they went to, again, one of these high-rises, just meeting people, telling them about Jesus, and uh, they went into this apartment and they said we're here to tell you about jesus for the last time We're we're going back to europe we'll not see you again and suddenly a man came forward he said i don't want to hear this isa is not the way jesus muhammad is the way and there were three of them there and they thought we're not going to argue so they said Let, let's just pray with you and they began to pray and suddenly this strong arab man said no i will pray And he said, If Isa is the way, then Allah, let this cup stay where it is. If Isa is the way, let the cup move. And the friend who wrote this to me just a few weeks ago said, Yeah, that was going to happen. And of course it didn't. Well, they shook hands and they were walking down the stairs. And the man said, I won't see you again. I'll never see you again, but I'll pray for you. And as they went down the stairs, suddenly the door burst open. And the big man rushed out, Mr. Yoop, he said, Mr. Yoop, you don't need to come again. You don't need to come again. I now believe Isa is the way. And he held in his hand the cup, split right down the middle. Not broken, not fractured, but razor edges right down the middle. The God who is working in the Middle East says, I haven't forgotten Hamilton. I haven't forgotten Lanarkshire. I haven't forgotten Scotland. Work with me. Build again that confidence that I sent my son to be the Savior. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Take the opportunities. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters in Hamilton Baptist Church, let nothing move you. Never be discouraged. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord for you know that your labor in the lord is never in vain let's pray